Hello everyone, my name's Safras Manzor. George Monbiot will be familiar to many of you because of his uh, journalism in The Guardian, but he is also, as you probably also know, the author of bestsellers like Feral, Rewilding the Land, the Sea and Human Life. Um, and his latest book, How Did We Get Into This Mess? Politics, Equality and Nature. Um, and he's going to be sort of signing copies and chatting to anybody who wants to chat to you um, in the bookshop afterwards. And his latest project is Breaking the Spell of Loneliness, um, a concept album. It's a very 70s idea, isn't it? A concept <laughs> album uh, written with the mu musician Ewan McLennan. Um, more pertinently, pertinently, in terms of what we're here for tonight, um, he co-founded The Land Is Ours, which is a, um, a land rights campaign, and he writes for uh, The Land magazine, where um, we're not talking specifically about the play, it's not like a review uh, session, it's more about discussion triggered by some of the themes in the play. So George, I mean, I just want to start with, you didn't, in terms of your connection to some of the themes, and one of the themes obviously um, in the play is, you know, who owns our land, who has a right to own it, how did you come to be interested in that as a subject area? I, I was working in Brazil um, um, starting in 1989. Um, I lived there for two or three years, um, and I was trying to find out what are the roots of environmental destruction, of the, the ripping up of the Amazon rainforest. And, and the story was that, you know, the, all these sort of peasants pouring in to grab land. But I was more interested in where are they coming from and why. And went to the northeast of Brazil, the state of Maranhão, um, which is outside the Amazon. Um, and this was the state from which the majority of peasants were coming in, into the rainforest at the time. And what I discovered was that they were not coming voluntarily. They had no option because they'd been thrown off their own land. In this case, by large-scale speculators and ranchers who were basically terminating their productive use of the land and turning the land into just gigantic share certificates which they could trade up and trade up without actually doing anything on it. Um, except running there a few cows on it to show that they owned it. And what I saw there was the, this total destruction of the people in their community. That um, the, 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 many people were being killed or tortured in order to drive everyone off the land. Um, they were losing um, everything that made their lives meaningful. Their, their community lives, their connection to the waymarks of the land, their ceremonial lives, which were intimately connected with the land. And what I saw happening is what we see happening to indigenous people the world over. Anomie, um, psychic collapse, psychic destruction, alcoholism, drug abuse, and the rest of it, all these follow. And it was when I'd been working there for two or three years, I came back to Britain and um, got sucked into the um, uh, uh, campaign against against road building, where people were losing beautiful water meadows and woodlands and archaeological monuments and the rest of it, and were just being dug up and buried under concrete, and suffering greatly as a result of those losses. And I began to become interested in this question. Then I started reading the poems of John Clare, and I saw in those poems the same psychic destruction as I'd witnessed in Brazil, and for that matter, in West Papua and East Africa, and then began to realize, wait a minute, this has happened to all of us. We've all been alienated from the land. We were all embedded in the land. We were all grounded in the land. We belonged to a place. Every one of us belonged to the place, and that place was taken from us, because this process of enclosure, of land grabbing, has taken place worldwide. So what's happened to us? Who are we? How much of the trouble in our minds and beyond our minds that we now experience comes from 
that fact. You could see what it did to John Clare. He ended up in an asylum as a result of that complete breakdown of his personality caused by the loss of the land in which he was wholly invested. Has that maybe happened to all of us? Is this one big asylum which <laughs> results from, from that alienation? Are we alienated from ourselves as well as from the land? And the interesting thing about that is that there is an existential question of identity as well as an economic question, and we're going to unpack some of that. Um, the play um, takes us back to the 19th century and the Enclosure Act that moved uh, land into uh, private ownership. Could you just talk a little bit about what the enclosure was and what the consequences have been about that? Sure. So probably quite a lot of people here have heard about the Highland Clearances. For some reason, we're attuned to that. We hear very little about the lowland clearances, which also took part in Scotland and expelled far more people. Fewer people still, perhaps, know about the English clearances, which was the enclosure movement. It was just about everyone in the countryside was ripped out by the roots as their land was seized by the lords of the manor and the new landed gentry and other um, um, powerful and rich forces in, in the land. And, and this... It began with the Cistercian monasteries in the 14th century, but it really began to take off in Tudor England as the price of wool rose, and people saw it was fantastically lucrative. If you could throw all the people off the land and put sheep on there instead, sheep are indeed the root of all evil, um, <laughs> um, which take very little labour to, 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 to manage and made an awful lot of money. Now, of course, what it supplanted was a feudal system, which um, had its own problems, we might say, um, and was highly exploitative and paternalistic and all the rest of it. And, you know, for a long time in this country, following the Norman Conquest, most people were slaves. But the one thing you can say in favour of feudalism is that the model depended on keeping as many people on the land as possible. That's where the wealth of the manor came from, was for having as many people on the land as possible. And in order to do that, you had to grant people certain rights. They had to be allowed um, to, to, to grow their own crops, otherwise they would starve to death. They had to be allowed to collect wood, otherwise they would freeze to death. They, they had to be allowed to collect building materials and build houses on the land. And there, were, there was a degree of reciprocity. Of course, you know, it was massively tilted in favour of the manor and against the common people. Um, but um, but there was a kind of rudimentary welfare state there. And when that welfare state was torn apart, people's response was very similar to what we face now as we see the NHS being, being ripped up. And a classic example was Thomas More in Utopia in 1516. He says, your sheep that was so meek and mild and such, su such a small eater now devours the me very men themselves. And, 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 the, and, and the buildings and the villages in which they live. And, and, of course, what he was talking about was the replacement of people by sheep. And, uh, you know, as, as John Prebles noted, noted with the Highland Clearances, by and large, the people left the land as meekly as the sheep came onto it. Um, but there were exceptions. There were enclosure riots. Um, and there were also attempts by the Crown to protect people from enclosure. And, and what we saw um, in Tudor England and then in Stuart England was a massive punch-up between the Crown, which 
bizarrely, in our view perhaps, was trying to protect the common people against the big landowners. And that led to the parliamentary revolt, which led to the Civil War. It was one of the major causes of the Civil War, was the, parliamentari the parliamentarians representing the landed interest, tugging against the restraints of the Crown in trying to enclose the land and throw everybody off in order to profit from it. Was there much resistance? Well, it, it varied. It varied. I mean, there was the, the, the diggers and the levellers during the 1640s, um, these sort of proto-communist movements who were trying to level the hedgerows. I mean, we think of hedgerows as a good thing now, but hedgerows what were used to enclose the, the fields um, in order to, to, to put sheep on. And, but they were also trying to level society. Um, and you know, the, the, the Diggers' Manifesto, the, um, the True Leveller's Standard Advanced, uh, written by Gerard Wynne Stanley in 1649, um, calls for universal education, universal suffrage, men and women. You know, this is so highly advanced. It's quite, you know, and, and a whole lot of things that you know, only came to pass in the 20th century are there in that manifesto. Um, and, um, and they saw um, fighting enclosure um, in metaphoric as well as literal terms, that they were th fighting for the overthrow of a, a fundamentally oppressive system and, and the commoning of human experience, where the land becomes, in Gerard Wynne Stanley's words, a common treasury for all. And they, they set up a sort of uh, a, 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 a community of their own um, on um, St. George's Hill in Surrey, now a very expensive golf course, surrounded by very expensive houses, to work the land in common and, and grow food and eat bread by the sweat of our brows. It was eventually destroyed by Cromwell's thugs. Um, but then subsequently, in the, um, uh, later in the 17th century, 18th century and 19th century, there were repeated enclosure riots, uh, swing revolts, for example, a lot of rick burning, a lot of fighting, all sort of airbrushed out of our history books. The idea of private ownership of land, we sort of assume that it's something which has been, you know, it's sort of ingrained, as I said, almost like a right of every British person, whether it's a, or an aspiration at least. Um, how, how old is that idea? Mm. Well, it's absolute ownership, really didn't, didn't exist until the early 16th century. The idea that one person can have total property rights. What, what, what pertained before then is that you'd have a piece of land and someone could say, I'm the lord of the manor, but that meant he had certain rights in that land, but not total rights. And other people had rights of, of pannage, putting their pigs on the land, of turbery, turf cutting, of estivers, gathering sticks, of, of, of pasturage, of pescary, fishing, and, you know, all sorts of different rights which were shared out among many people. Enclosure basically meant the termination of everybody else's rights and the vesting of absolute rights in the lord of the manor. Now, this was sort of consolidated in the philosophy of John Locke. And John Locke's a very interesting man um, because he started out in his professional life as secretary to the Lord's Proprietors of Carolina, uh, which was this vast English colony in North America. This was um, um, uh, several decades before independence. Um, and, um, and, and basically, the Lord's Proprietors were these people who'd been given a royal monopoly on land which they would then lease at extortionate terms to people who wanted to grow things. They didn't actually do anything um, except just sat, sit back and harvest money. They were the ultimate rentiers. Um, and it was out of that experience that Locke began to ex examine the question um, 
what right do we have to own land? Which is a crucial question, which we don't even think about today. It's just been expunged from consciousness. And he came up with a formula, which the Lord's proprietors would not have liked, because they never did anything, that you, you gain rights to own land by mixing your labour with that land. It's total bollocks. But it's the, for, it, it's the source of all land law and land philosophy across much of the world, including in the UK now. And people say, well, you mix your labour with the land and that gives you a right to own land. And you say, wait a minute, hold on here. First of all, who are you? You, know, you turn up in America and Locke said, all the world was once America. And what he meant was all the world was once a terra nullis, nobody owning it. And that's how he characterised America, because, of course, the, the, the indigenous people, they were nobody. They didn't count. And so you turn up and you say, right, OK, I, uh, do I have a right to own this land? Yes, if I work the land. Uh, then I own the land. You say, wait a minute, no, you don't. There were other people working this land for thousands of years before you turned up. And that's the case almost everywhere on Earth. Secondly, um, if you are the landowner, you're not necessarily working it yourself. Your slaves might be working the land. Oh, that's fine, says Locke, because they're basically your labour. Your slaves are your labour, they belong to you. All your servants, your paid servants, are your labour. But why? Where's the justice in that? But then thirdly, and this is the sort of craziest thing of all, once you have once claimed to have worked the land, you can then own it in perpetuity, pass it down to your descendants, be the sole recipient of any money received from selling it to someone else who doesn't have to work it themselves, that that right to the land then exists in perpetuity. It's a totally nonsensical formulation, Which is but what it's never challenged. Now. Which is what we've got. Which is what we've got. And we've got this, basically, a rentier economy. I mean, we're told this is an enterprise society. Bolo Sorry, I shouldn't keep using that word, but it, does, it makes me annoyed this, because actually, fundamentally, this is an economy based on rent. And I don't just mean the extortionate rents you pay for your flat or your house, which are indeed um, a big portion of this, but but basically people harvesting money without having to provide any productive benefit for, 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 in, in return for the money that they are paid. They're not making new things, they're not providing services which wouldn't otherwise have existed. And that accounts for much of the work of the City of London, it, it accounts for a huge tranche of our economy, which is basically rich people, you know, giving interest, but sort of making a loan at interest, the interest you harvest is rent. Because you're just sitting on the money, you say, I'll give you the money, you don't have to do any work, the other person has to do the work to build the business which pays, pays off the loan, and they're just giving you all that interest in the form of rent. This is how our, our, our society works. It's a rentier economy, fundamentally, with a little bit of enterprise on top. And that allows extremely rich people to exploit everybody else. And nowhere is that clearer than in the case of land ownership. Why are rents so expensive in houses? Why, why are mortgages so expensive? It's not the bricks and mortar which cost so much. Um, in, in the, uh, at the beginning of the last century, uh, sorry, in 1930 actually, the price of, of, of land was 2% of the price of a house on average. This is in Scotland. I don't have figures for, for England. We only seem to be able to find figures for Scotland. Today it's 70%. The majority of what you're paying for, and it would be a lot more in London than that, it's probably 80-90%, is the speculative value of the land that, they, that the building sits on. I've got no problem at all with someone profiting from the building they have constructed or from the crops that they grow on the land. But the notion that you can 
own the land and make money from its speculative increase in value that is simply a license for the rich to fleece the poor. And this is a huge part of our economic problem today. It is why we have such rampant inequality. It is why so many people are immersed in rent and debt, which they've got absolutely no hope of paying. It's why so few people, now young people, have a prospect of buying a home of their own. So that's how the past links up with the present. And another part of the past which is quite interesting is this idea of Englishness and English identity because you know, the idea of the countryside is often, it's often endemically part of what we imagine um, to be sort of the essential idea of England. Um, but that idea, you know, the paintings of Constable, etc., is often mm. quite sort of benign, isn't it? Mm. It's quite a sanitised idea. How, how close is it to the actual reality? Well, I think that's very well put. And in fact, Constable is a great example because he was a great enthusiast for enclosure. His letters are basically fascistic. He's saying, yeah, get rid of the lot of them. They're just scum. Send them to the colonies. And then he paints these beautiful, <laughs> harmonious paintings of everyone living in peace in the countryside. And of course, you know, it's a victor's piece. You know, you clear, I mean, you take the cornfields. He's painting the cornfield. There's one guy with a scythe in, at the sort of crux of the painting with these sort of great wheat fields on, on, on either side of him. And you know, that is, well, I mean, it would never have been like that. You can't have one guy with a scythe harvesting a, 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 harvesting a wheat field. There would have to be teams. But that's how he wanted it to be. It's like a theme be. park. It's like a theme park. And in fact, that is what the countryside is to a large extent now. And, you know, the National Trust is terrible in this respect. I, you, know, you go to a big stately home. History in it begins when the stately home is built. But where did the land come from? What was there before? How was this huge estate of thousands of acres created? Only by throwing everybody else off. It's not there in their histories. You know, it's not there in Constable's paintings. It's not there in the songs that Percy Granger selected because he selected out the political ones. We have this airbrushed, sanitised history of the countryside and this word harmony is used all the time. Oh, look, people in harmony with nature, people in harmony with each other. This is a place of peace and harmony. It's a very old idea. I mean, it goes back to Theocritus in the third century BC or indeed to the Old Testament. This idea that the countryside is the place where the refuge from the corruption of the city, where it's all peace and purity and harmony. It's just rubbish. I mean, it's got the same violent politics as the city has. And indeed, many of the city's violent politics originate from the stuff which starts in the countryside. In this country, not just enclosure, but the new poor law of 1834, which had devastating impacts and threw people into the workhouse and stuff because basically agricultural labourers don't have employment during the winter. So into the workhouse with you. I mean, horrible, horrible things. The countryside in this country is soaked in blood. And we still have a perpetuation and, and, and exacerbation of, of, the, of its inequalities and injustices. Uh, until recently, for instance, the rate of land consolidation in England was 2% a year, which was as great as at any time during the enclosures. We now have the second highest concentration of land ownership in the world after Brazil, according to one estimate. And no one talks about this stuff. Why do you think that is? Is it just because it's inconceivable to imagine that things could be any different? No, it's a propaganda system. It is a, since the Norman Conquest, we have had a bunch of people in power in the countryside who say, this is how it is. And they, they tell the story from their perspective. And it's a story we accept. We go around a stately home and say, oh, yes, isn't it wonderful? We don't recognise that we're looking at a death cult. It's so obvious. 
You know, what have you got in stately homes? Suits of armour, weapons on the walls, hunting scenes, battle scenes. It's all about killing stuffed animals all over the place. This is, this is a culture as obsessed with death as any Mara in Tegucigalpa. Um, and, have you ever and thought about doing any of those audio guides? <laughs> That's right, yeah. And here we have another scene of killing. Oh, look, more blood. And of course it's a death cult, because how do they get the land? You know, you took the Norman conquest, wasn't there a bunch of people coming over and saying, I say, you chaps, you know, we're jolly good gentlemen, and I think we ought to take over here. It was, it was blood-soaked, the harrowing of the North, the mass murder, genocidal attacks on the people of this country. And so we end up with now this sort of perfectly ordered, peaceful, harmonious situation. Which but continued through enclosure, of course. But I meant more like in terms of the political debate and the political mm. landscape, is this an idea that just seems beyond the pale to challenge? Mm. Well, of course, you can't separate the political and cultural influences. You know, and culture, as uh, Gramsci points out, is absolutely crucial to political dominance. And if you can capture the culture and tell people, this is a noble culture, this is a fine thing we've created, people just say, oh, yes, it is. And of course, in the countryside in particular, there's a real cultural deference. Massive forelock tugging. It's very, very hard to challenge um, people in the countryside because you'll find uh, you know, a whole lot of rural people falling behind the lords of the manor and basically deferring to them. Um, and you know, in the, in the, the, the cities, um, by contrast, tend to be um, much more radical and prepared to, to, to take people on. Um, but partly because what's happened in the countryside was that the only people who were kept on as the servants to look after the sheep were the most conciliatory people who were prepared to, to, to go along with the programme. They, they, they were basically the collaborators and everybody else was kicked out. There were a few lucky people who maybe weren't collaborators, but by and large it was a collaborator stayed on and that culture of deference has remained. So I'd say you can't separate the two things out easily, but yes, absolutely, you know, we have um, a, a, a politics in this country which is very strongly dominated by rentiers who are not just econo extracting economic rent, but also political rent. You know, when Thomas Piketty talks about patrimonial capital, you could apply exactly the same analysis to the political sphere, that when people acquire massive self-generating wealth, which rolls from one generation to the next, they also acquire massive self-generating power which rolls on as well, which doesn't need elections to be consolidated. And, and you keep hold of that power without um, uh, actually having to go to the people. And, and, so, and, and with that comes a shutting down of discourse. You see it in the newspapers, a great majority of which are owned by billionaires and give you the opinion of billionaires. You know, when Andrew Marr says, let's review the newspapers, he never says, let's review the opinions of billionaires this week. You know, but that's what they're doing all the time. And, and, and so we're just saturated in the views of the lords of the land, literally and metaphorically. So does this mean that change, if it's going to come, has to come from the ground? Mm. We basically need anti-enclosure movements today. And of course, enclosure, you can see it you know, as the seizure of land, but it's a seizure of so much else is taking place as well. Because basically, you know, we, we talk about the economy as if it's a co conflict between the state and, and the market. And what's left out is number one, the household, but number two, the commons. And the commons is still a big thing in our lives. The internet is a classic example of the commons. Scientific publishing is a classic example of, of the commons. There's all sorts of things we own in common and, and, and ways we operate in common through our communities. 
But um, enclosure is continuing. You know, they're trying to attack net neutrality at, at the moment, which is an attack on the common wheel um, in order to try to privatise it. Scientific publishing has been captured by the, these companies which make Rupert Murdoch look like a socialist. Yeah, where you get sort of charged forty dollars to read one article. I mean, it's quite mm. extraordinary what's going on, and and so there's this constant process of enclosure happening. And this is cultural enclosure as well, isn't it? It's cultural about. enclosure. It's it's political. It's economic. You, just as an aside, do you think that the attacks on the BBC are an example of? Like I I, I, th I think very much so. I mean, the BBC. I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a common because actually it it's a state resource, and state resources and common resources are slightly different, and it's very much removed from us. It's hard for us to have any influence over the BBC, but it's definitely, it's got a sort of common element mm. to it. And, and the attempts to basically demolish it and privatise it are an attempted enclosure. Mm. The NHS would be a clearer example where that, that definitely has common as well as state elements to it. And there's a definite, very clear privatisation and therefore enclosure agenda the NHS. So, so, you know, it's only by understanding our history and how we got here and, and how we've ended up in this situation where we're alienated from ourselves, alienated from our fundamental resources, including our land, alienated from each other, that we can begin to fight back against a process which has gone back a thousand years. But what does a fight back look like then? Well, I believe we need a new narrative, a new story. Um, part of the problem we face is that um, uh, an, in any area except the extreme right, there has been no new narrative since Keynes's general theory in 1936. I mean, no new narrative which sort of is widely adopted by political parties. Um, and you know, when Keynes's programme ran into trouble in the 1970s, the neoliberals had been working for 30 years on, on, on an alternative. You know, Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, Milton Friedman and the rest of it and turned up and said, here's your alternative. Totally devastating. I mean, neoliberalism is a sort of massive sort of form of hyper-enclosure where it just grabs everything, privatise everything, uh, tear down trades unions, tear down communities, allow the rich to grab the lot. I mean, it's very much like um, the enclosure movements of, of the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, but taken into every sphere of life. That hits the wall spectacularly in 2008. It just falls apart, the whole neoliberal system, and there's nothing with which to replace it because no one's been doing any strategic thinking. No one's been developing a new political, economic, and psychological narrative in the intervening years with which to replace it. And that, to my mind now, is the crucial task. And part of that, is it also to do with... Identity, because you are, there was something you wrote earlier, which was um, talk about economic rationalisation and growth have helped to deliver us from a remarkable range of ills, but they've also torn us from our moorings, atomised and alienated us, set us out each in its different way to seek our own identities. Um, we have gained unimagined freedoms, but we have lost unimagined freedoms. And I was just wondering, do you think there is a link with some of the identity and nationalism issues that have come about? You know, whether it's UKIP, whether it's people feeling, who are we, and this subject? I think very strongly. What people crave, I believe, more than anything else is belonging. A sense of being here. And it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your origins are. You just want to belong to a community. You know, what we've been told by the airline companies and the holiday companies is that, li is that living the dream means going as far away as possible. 
to an exotic a location as possible. But I think what most people want more than anything is the feeling they belong to a community which, in which they are embedded, in which people care for them, for which they themselves care. And that is what we are constantly deprived of and, uh, and have been deprived of, well, since the Norman Conquest, really. And, and that's what we, we, we have to build back towards. And this is why I feel that, that the crucial um, um, innovation we need in politics is a politics of belonging. But the danger of that is that it can be quite a narrow sense of belonging, can't it? And the people who say you belong actually do build an enclosure or build a high fence and say actually only the people who can kind of trace themselves back X amount of generations belong. This is where the commons come in. You see that there's inclusive belonging rather than exclusive belonging. And if, if you can build a community based around the use of common resources, whatever that might be, and there are many, many different examples of what those common resources can consist of, where um, you have equal access to them and an equal stake in them, doesn't matter what your origins are. That's the thing. That, that, that sort of idea of the inclusive belonging, where where you know, it's not about your skin colour, it's not about your bloodline, it's nothing to do with that. Um, you know, and in the play, the aristocrat talks about his blood. You know, mm -hmm. that's what he's got, his mm -hmm. blood, because actually he's got virtually nothing else, but he's got his blood. Um, uh, and, um, and but you know, it's absolutely not about that, and can't be about that. It's got to be about us finding our place. And there's a wonderful study by Lam. Are we in Lambeth here? We're in Lambeth, Lambeth so. Borough. So. Anyway, Lambeth Borough Council have done this, this fascinating study um, on how to build. You say thick how little grounded this community yeah. is. Yeah. We don't no know. No, no one knows are. where we are. Where, where, are <laughs> where is this place? <laughs> Southwark, Southwark. Okay, next door. <laughs> next door to Southwark. Um, uh, and, and we've got um, uh, 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 how to build th what they call thick networks, which is building a participatory culture, which eventually more or less sucks everyone in because it becomes so exciting and, and you get a sense that this is where it's at. And, and they've, they've sort of produced this vast document, many hundreds of pages, which shows the steps towards creating that thing. And I think that... That is one of the ways forward. Um, a last question from me, and then I'm going to throw it open to any uh, questions for me. Do you, feel, do you feel that you're going against the wind at the moment, or do you think things are turning more towards some of these ideas? You know, there's so many conflicting currents at the moment. All, all nations go through long periods of stasis where nothing happens, and then sudden rupture. And at the moment, we're undergoing sudden rupture. And it's very hard to know where the cards are going to fall. When, when that event has, has, has fed through. I mean, Brexit is obviously unmanageable. Um, it's going to lead to unknown and possibly catastrophic, possibly in some cases beneficial change. Um, the massive resurgence of What's the beneficial change? Well, you know, I was reading an article, reading an article in The Guardian the other day, which said, you know, Brexit is absolutely terrible. You know, it could, could be the end of the city of London. It could paralyse Heathrow Airport. Um, <laughs> It could, uh, there's this massive arms deal that BAE is doing, which could be jeopardised by it. And I think, <laughs> hmm, I'm beginning to see the virtues of this idea. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, we've also got this, this massive mobilisation, which the Labour Party has tapped into. Extraordinary mm. things happening, mm. you know, where we thought, your politics just seemed dead. It was mm. so boring in this country for so long, and suddenly it's alive again. And perhaps what we're seeing is a new enclosure riot taking place. Our time is up. Um, George, you're going to be signing copies 
in the bookshop and you said that you, you're happy to just sit and chat with people mm -hmm. as and when. Um, and I um, hope you've enjoyed this and please join me in thanking George Monbiot. <laughs>